in a world where crazy dictators trying to prevent you from accessing your Twitter account. It's news of the world coming to your help and prints out the internet and then reads it aloud on this podcast. That's what we do. And that's my friend Bicycle Mark in Amsterdam. Hello, Mark. Hello. And of course me, Tim Pritlove. And together we are your intrepid reporters on the internet. Yeah, that's what we are. We are heroes, aren't we? Well, uh -oh. maybe yes. not, but uh, the printing and reading stuff is true, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a printer. It, it doesn't have any ink, but, you know, it's uh, there. <laughs> so if we would have ink, <laughs> we would actually print it and read it. Yeah. So we're just trying to make um, sense out of these funny little fonts on our screen. Yeah. Ink, ink is really old-fashioned, if we're <laughs> honest. We are old-fashioned. We're still That's on true. this medium, you know? Podcasting, it's almost, oh, ten, podcast. it's almost 10 years ago, uh, old, you know? This, yeah. in internet terms, is, you know... It is old-fashioned. Boring, yeah, it's old-fashioned, boring stuff for old people. You are all rebels and resistors for listening to podcasts. <laughs> Don't listen to anyone who tells you... Yeah, you or to put it positively, you're true believers. Yes, yeah, so true believers, let's have a look at the news. Now... We were with you last week, and uh, of course, I guess the last three shows we've had <laughs> updates about the Ukraine and the situation. Oh, I have to stop saying the Ukraine, because it's, it's just Ukraine. But I think it's because I get into these sentences and I put the word the. Anyway, so <laughs> Crimea, since last we spoke, Crimea has voted to be uh, 95% to be part of Russia. Sorry to the 5% that voted no or otherwise couldn't handle their ballot. <laughs> Um, and I know how that goes because I voted in an election here in Amsterdam this week, and, and I don't know why this happened, but I, I honestly used a red X in the in the little bubble, and then someone told me, you know, you're supposed to fill in the bubble, and now I believe that my red X has probably made my ballot uh, um, un unaccepted. So really, so I, I, invalid. I th I think so. I think so. I don't know. You'll we'll never know. In, you're an invalid voter. Yeah, so so fill in the bubbles, Crimea. Mm -hmm. But anyway, 95% managed to do it, according to Crimea statistics. And so now it's uh, part of Russia. And man, I mean, red tape and, and maybe a little slow normally, but on this issue, Russia jumped right into action. Uh, the change is official. The flags are up. That's it. That was, uh, that was super fast. They are now part of Russia. Uh, I have. I wonder about visa requirements and uh, and all kinds of things. Uh, Are they already really a part of Russia when it comes to Russia? I think they just signed like the law that might actually uh, make this happen, but it hasn't really officially taken place. But you know, this is totally obvious that it's, that it's going to come. Russia is just <laughs> going to uh, move ahead, and obviously, they either don't care what the um, outcome on an international scale is or they have otherwise prepared the next coup to you know <laughs> react to whatever yeah. things because in a way i mean they seem to be very well informed i mean they have been at least one or two steps ahead of everybody else and this is the big embarrassment both for the eu where you're more or less used to you know them being slow slow Uh, but also the U.S., you know, which they yeah. claim like, oh, yeah, we knew eight days before that this might happen. But, yeah. well, then, good, you knew it, but did you prepare in any sense? You know, but it, it's funny, you know, that somehow the U.S. is somehow um, on the backseat of everything when it comes to international uh, reactions these days. But in a way, that's what we always, or what, like, a part of the world community sort of always demanded, you know, that they are not so upfront and <laughs> into things <laughs> Think and about it. intervening yeah. with everything. Now they're not doing it. Nobody is really feeling better no. as well. No, you're right. And then this is, this is Russia continuing to be fast. <clears throat> you know, that's, yeah. that's what they're going to become famous for. Wow, those Russians are fast. Um, and so you're right. Uh, I guess it was the parliament or the Duma that voted... Uh, to recognize 
uh, Crimea as a part of Russia. But uh, yeah, uh, it's true. There must be some kind of process still going on. But it's all happened really fast. And what I found interesting this week in the media, uh, something far more interesting, I would say, than this whole talk about sanctions and and is Putin bad? I mean, it's all those are all worthy topics, but the money has been particularly interesting. The logistics of uh, annexing or taking on a new region, especially a region that's kind of an island. Um, and so I found it interesting, several articles coming out in different sources about the cost of this change, the cost for Crimea, the cost for Russia, and also uh, details on, for example, what this means for the region's electricity and water, which at this point come from Ukraine or what is still Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen, right? Does Ukraine continue to allow electricity and water uh, to get to the region? I've heard that they will. At the same time, you have Russia making the announcements. and, And here's where I've been following the money. So let me just do it in a list. Russia has promised 400 million, uh, this is in US dollars, mm-hmm. 400 million for the Crimea budget. And apparently that would be double their normal budget. You mean so this is really cool. On an annual scale? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So on the one hand, that's like, okay, there's one reason we see, at least from a government point of view, and maybe people know why people go, yay, Russia, you can get double our budget. We're going to have gold shoes. Uh, so then you have. Um, a quarter of the population in this region are actually pensioners. They're retired. And pensions in Russia, this is interesting, are double what they are in the Ukraine, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, This means for Russia, it's going to cost $1.9 billion per year. Uh, This is according to the Toronto Star, uh, just to pay the pensions. All right, $1.9 billion, got it. So then there's the electricity and water issue. Uh, in the short run or maybe long run, they're going to have to build something that goes to Russia. They say just building their own power plant would cost $1.7 billion. And of course, they would look to Russia for this money. There used to be these plans to build a bridge. It used to be between, it's supposed to be between Ukraine and then Russia. This, is go- this would be a bridge that goes from Crimea to Russia. Apparently, it would cost $1.4 billion, and it would take, well, a lot of years to build. So there's something else on the, on the, sh- on the docket for what to do. Um, I, you know, this comes out somewhere in the range of $10 billion, I guess. Uh, they say Russia has the money. They've, they've got $100 billion or more stashed away for, I don't know, rainy day emergencies. Um, which, by the way, made me ask... What did the Sochi Olympics cost? I found it $51 billion to pay on, on that. But um, it's amazing, like the amount of money that gets thrown around. And in the end, Russia is fine, right? I mean, we've talked about that since the beginning. They can handle things like this. Yes. Uh, even though this could be horrible for the economy and the ruble is going down. Um, it has been since this conflict has been going on. But for Crimea, actually, this could be big problems because... Russia doesn't necessarily do what it promises, right? You, this is like a campaign. Yeah. You do this when you first take over, and then you do half of what you promised. So they could actually find themselves with pensions that don't get paid, uh, you know, bridges and electricity that never, <laughs> or, or new sources that never exist. So the risk here is all Crimea's, of course, um, and not so much Russia's. That's true, and uh, nobody knows if these are promises that are going to be kept, but uh, I can totally understand that this is sort of you know working there, at least because they are so much closer to Russia because of language and tradition and everything. And you know, we have to remember the Crimea have, has been a part of Russia for ever until Khrushchev, who was a Ukrainian. Uh, when he was running the Soviet Union, somehow handed it over technically to the Ukraine, which was then a part of Soviet, the Soviet Union. So it didn't really matter that much, you know, mm. where, you know, what part they were all, uh, off because they were still part of Soviet Union. Then when the Soviet Union uh, failed and, and was split up into all these original countries, you know, this situation was new. I'm not saying like this is a good thing and or whatever, or this is like the natural way to do it. It's totally obvious that Russia has sort of 
um, fail to comply with the international rules here. And I think, you know, I think this is a severe mistake they have been doing. It's just that they think they can get away with it or they don't really care so much because on the other hand, they get the advantage of, uh, you know, they they think they are just willing to pay whatever it costs because the gain <laughs> for them is so much bigger. Because imagine what what is at stake here for Russia, just out of Russia's logic. The Crimea, not only being a part of Russia, I don't think that this, it was always a part of us, you know, matters that much. It's all about power struggles and influence and, 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 and geopolitics. And especially the geopolitics are very important. I mean, this is the place where the marine forces of um, Russia is stationed, you know. There were far more Russian soldiers on the Crimea island than there were ever Ukrainian soldiers. <laughs> yeah. And it's the basis, and it's, it's their access to the Mediterranean. The only other place they have is the port they have in Syria. And we've spoken about this a lot, you know, and the, the whole involvement of um, uh, Russia in, in Syria was, you know, at least in part dictated by, by this fact too. Because it's their port to uh, their other port. It's a direct port to the Mediterranean. Uh, the uh, Black Sea is at least connected to the Mediterranean. But it's sort of the oh, western gate for the southern western gate for Russia to the world, to world trade, to world security in a way, military influence and so on. That's just something they are not willing to give up. And they yep. don't care Whatever happens to the Ukraine, they, they don't care. It's, it's for them. It's just not interesting uh, on uh, in the scale of things that they're, they're dealing with here. So mm -hmm. that's why they're going to move ahead. That's why the West is still going to, you know, protest and put up sanctions or whatever. And it might cost them a lot, but I think they've just decided, decided for them, like, yeah, we don't care what it costs because... We are not willing to, you know, get yeah. rid of whatever uh, is at stake here. Yeah, yeah, and there's no price tag too high or whatever. It's, it's just yeah. not an issue because this uh, yeah, is actually, this is this is a project for for the next five decades. You know, that's that's mm -hmm. like having that influence is important. And Russia is still the biggest country on this planet. Don't forget this. Mm. Mm. Uh, actually, in the recent edition of Off the Wall, which is one of the podcasts from 2600, uh, Emmanuel read a, a long speech. I guess it was the speech that one of the speeches that Putin gave to his to parliament about why do this and so on. And he used Kosovo as an example of a, a situation where um, it, 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 the world didn't quite know what to do, but a group of people wanted to separate. And anyway, he used Kosovo as the, the sort of logic as to what's going on in, in Crimea and how, you know, it was okay when the international forces uh, took action in Kosovo. Uh, therefore, it's okay when Russia does this in, in Crimea because a group of people want to be free. Anyway, uh, whether or not these are good examples, it was impressive because at, back in those times, Russia was against Uh, or often in the way of what happened in Kosovo, at least from an international forces standpoint. And now he's saying, well, I didn't like it. You did it. Now I'm doing this. Uh, and and he, he, he actually uses a lot of interesting arguments. I guess that's why Emmanuel read the, uh, read the text. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, and uh, in, in a way there's a certain logic to it. And the logic that the West is bringing uh, on the table is not really that compelling uh, either. Uh, and it's also formed. Chancellor, German Chancellor uh, Gerhard Schröder, you know, who was in charge when Europe attacked Serbia for the Kosovo, he admitted that, like, they also failed to, you know, deal properly with uh, international mm -hmm. treaties and stuff, and that it was sort of um, against the rules, what they did in, in Kosovo, and mm -hmm. that Russia is doing it the same way, like, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. interesting that the, uh, he's op openly uh, admitting this, you know. I don't know if he wants to make things right uh, this way. He's been very close with Putin for a long time, hmm. which nobody really understands in Germany that much, you know. He has been the high, behind the new gas connection between uh, Russia and Germany, the direct connection through the uh, Eastern Sea. 
Um, so he's not very popular because of his uh, strong relationship to uh, Putin. Huh. Um, so it's very interesting. This is new geopolitics. And the other thing that I find interesting is that now Russia is turning to China. And of course, China is backing Russia here in this case. You know, just think about Taiwan and China's relationship to Taiwan. So in a sense, that's really playing into their hands. Uh, and I, I guess we're very close to some kind of international cooperation, military, security-wise between China and, and Russia. They have been getting along quite fine recently. And this situation where the West is sort of standing against Russia, they're just opening up their East Asia connection and, you know, I was reminded of hmm. uh, Orwellian scenarios, you know. <laughs> yes. War is peace, and uh, we've always been uh, at war with East Asia, and it's, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, all uh, coming so, again. <laughs> yeah, and 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 so as many people know, the sanctions went into effect uh, this week. That comes from both the U.S. and the EU. I saw the list. It even included like the deputy prime minister of Russia. It included a lot of big names. Um, so, so those sanctions are now in effect. I don't know how long they even last, to be honest. Also interesting was this week came the news. Oh, yeah, there was a military exercise in the Arctic, my favorite region. Uh, between It was basically NATO forces uh, doing exercises in the Arctic preparing or... How do they word it? As an exercise in the possibility of military activity in the Arctic. There you go. Without ever saying uh, conflict with Russia. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so uh, this is just another Cold War throwback. A, a, I mean, the, they say the exercise was already scheduled before the Ukraine conflict, which is probably true, but it still always feels a little different now. Uh, and especially as we know, the Russians have the Russians, excuse me, the Russian government has a great interest in access to the Arctic, controlling that access and using it for resources and all manner of uh, benefit. All right. That's a lot of Russia. It is. It's a big place. <laughs> let's, go to the, let's go over to the other big place in the world, the Internet. Oh, that one. Yeah. Now, I saw this story and I kind of saved it. Uh, this was probably a week ago. The U.S. government allegedly looked like was handing the Internet or management of the Internet to the United Nations. And I put a question mark at the end of that one. Um, the announcement came from so-called U.S. officials at the Commerce Department that the long-running contract between the Commerce Department and ICANN, you would know them as the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, uh, which is a nonprofit group based in California where you have to get your domains or at least pay a uh, symbolic fee to them. Is it symbolic or is it significant? It's uh, Yeah, it's a fee. Uh, the contract is set to expire next year, and basically the Commerce Department said uh, they're not going to renew it, that some, in some way there should be a transition to a more global management of the Internet. Actually, some of those words are mine, and that's where the importance lies, because the question is, what comes next, right? And everybody started speculating, saying, aha, now the, Uni the United Nations or, or the world will have more influence because the Internet will no longer be managed by a department of the U.S. government. That's what I was reading at first, and then I read a little deeper, and thankfully we have uh, clever and uh, very specialized thinkers out there. Um, one is my friend Catherine Mayer, who comes on my podcast occasionally to discuss all manner of topics, and she wrote in Politico uh, that this move actually won't change or doesn't have to change anything. Um, this is actually more of a political move to uh, get away from all the criticism uh, about the NSA, about the U.S.'s behavior with spying, basically. Um, but that the if you read the details of this move, um, the Commerce Department has to approve of any transitional plan. And if they don't like the plan, then it'll be rejected and we'll go back to the old agreement. And what she seems to be suggesting is that uh, that could easily happen. Uh, the other thing she points out is that ICANN, although it's based in California, they have offices around the world. 
Um, they have a, a sort of governance with representatives from 111 countries, apparently. Um, so it's not necessarily this, this American NGO. Me, I don't know. I, I know the name I can from, from, yes, my, my domain and occasionally once a year or something getting a little email verifying my address or whatever. So, uh, yeah, but, but this is interesting because at first it's like, oh, big change and then no change. No, no. The internet will continue to be sort of managed the way it's been managed until now. Yeah, the ICANN has been a, a strange group. I mean, what what's important to understand is that not all powers of the internet are bundled in the ICANN. You know, it's basically what uh, the name implies. It's about uh, addresses and names and, 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 and numbers. So there are sort of... Um, directing the path and giving out the rules on what kind of uh, addresses are valid you know the for instance the i can decides on which kind of top level domains exist and you know they yeah. sort of give out licenses to countries and groups to you know deal with these top level domains so just recently we got dot berlin for instance you know instantiated wow. yeah and dot vienna too you know very close to dot amsterdam nobody really knows what these top level domains should you know do for us but you know i don't care um, is too many letters. Yeah, I'm split in in this uh, particular question of what kind of top level domain should be allowed. Uh, in a way, this original, <laughs> yeah, give it to me. Dot Pritlove. Um, <laughs> that's what I love to have, but I probably won't. Anyway, this so that that's that's the kind of politics they uh, deal with, and there's a lot of politics associated with that but it's by far not the only body that uh, plays a major role. There's also the IETF which is especially uh, responsible for a lot of those uh, technical standards that in these days are in my point of view much more important because it's all about you know what kind of encryption is really going on on the internet what you know what's the path for protocols and, 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 and network structure and so on. That's not so much what the ICANN um, deals with. The ICANN used to have at least an approach in the beginning to be sort of um, democratic. There was even once a process that they have since uh, stopped doing that uh, internet users vote for members of the ICANN board. Huh. And maybe you remember it was... Uh, quite a few years ago that this took place once and in Germany uh, or for Europe they actually chose Andy Müller-Magun of the Chaos Computer Club to be a member of the board which he was for I think two years or so so mm -hmm. but you know then everybody's like oh no they're voting hackers into our board and this can't be and you know <laughs> Uh, so they found a way to make this stop and go away. But in a way, it's still a, some kind of international body. So the other th thing that, uh, uh, what's the name again, Catherine Mayer yeah. implies is that this is also a move to sort of say, well, yeah, okay, we're, we're letting ICANN off our leash here uh, to prevent other tendencies And one of those tendencies that has been discussed, which the U.S. opposed strongly, was handing over control of these parts to the ITU. Mm. And that's one of the rare cases where the Internet community, trademark, is sort <laughs> of in total agreement with the U.S. government. <laughs> mm. Because ITU, that would be the worst. That would be totally the worst thing that could happen to the internet. That would be like the immediate death of the internet because that's when all those national governments sort of get a direct influence because ITU is nothing but uh, a UN of telecom companies that are owned by states. You know, It's mm -hmm. all those big players. Might be slightly different in the US right now, but usually in all those countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, and so on, all those autocratic states, you know, the influence of the state on the major telecommunication industry is like 100%. So that's where censorship and, and all those movements would you know, find easily their way into uh, the internet or by preventing you know, other measures uh, that might mm -hmm. prevent that from happening. So I don't want, know what to make out of this. The um, 
word on the street was always that everybody wanted to the US to step back a bit because you know everybody accepts and, and acknowledges that this was originally a US academia project sort of mm. born out of funding of the mm -hmm. defense ministerium and so on but we all know that the internet has transitioned to be something uh, to uh, to be a completely different beast and uh, it's it's more or less clear that at one point in time there needs to be some kind of international, truly international body. But in a way, the US is also still... Um, it's funny to say this in these times, you know. They've always been sort of protecting the internet. <laughs> We know that this is no longer really the case uh, after all those NSA scandals. But there, it's also too simple to say like... That there is only one government, you know? Yeah, We all know that, like, the U.S. government is a multitude of different kinds of groups that have totally different uh, opinions <laughs> on things. And while there is this one part that is uh, Secret Service oriented and lets them do whatever they want, there's also this other part that is, you know, funding tour and, you know, uh, is still sort of enlightened by this general vision of the open and free internet that will br bring democracy and Twitter to everybody. So, <laughs> I don't know where this is all leading, but I still, we're better off with mm. the current situation if you compare it to a possible ITU-controlled situation. What this recent move actually will bring, I don't know. But I think the US is only letting the hands of things where they are absolutely sure that, you know, it's going into the direction they have always envisioned for them. Mm -hmm. But more in terms of, you know, keeping the internet useful for everybody. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that that right. So so in a way, as the great Hacker conference used to be called in uh, Yugoslavia, uh, in Yugoslavia, in uh, Croatia. Nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. <laughs> yeah, breaking news. Nothing <laughs> will happen. <laughs> Nothing will happen. That was always my favorite name for a conference. All right. I saw this and I had to grab it and bring it to News of the World. The UN Asylum Seekers List. Basically, a report came out the, the year in review for 2013. And let's see. Uh, Syria... Uh, generated 56,000. They're in first place. Uh, not to talk about this like a competition, of course, but they, they are ranked first in the world for number of asylum seekers, especially for the year 2013. They doubled uh, 2012's total of 25,000 plus. Um, interestingly, uh, and this took me a while, and actually there's no clear reason as to why, but Russia... <laughs> is the second biggest source of asylum seekers, 39,000, up again another couple of thousand from 2012. In the article that appeared in Al Jazeera, they say it comes from the Chechnya region, mm -hmm. uh, which I, of course, cannot argue with necessarily, but uh, I'm still kind of surprised. I always think that refugees will occur more from a, a, a war-torn region and, and Chechnya at, the, at this very moment is not a war necessarily, although I, I, clearly people live in enough fear that they're uh, trying to get out of there. But I guess, you know, economy is also a very big reason. And I think that region, especially of Russia, doesn't have much hope economically. And uh, that's where the second most people are applying for uh, asylum or from where they're coming. Uh, I looked further down the list. Afghanistan is in third place. Uh, less people leaving Afghanistan. And after Afghanistan, you get Iraq and Serbia. Serbia is actually in the fifth position. This kind of looks like an old list, but this is from 2013. Hmm. And interestingly, the report throws it the other way and talks about which countries in the world got the most asylum applications. Um, Europe collectively gets the most Again, I don't think that's very surprising considering the amount of countries and a tradition of, of receiving asylum seekers. Yeah, and also the mm -hmm. geo situation. I mean, Europe is more or less the place to go for, you know, from Africa, north, from uh, eastern, yeah. uh, Middle East, and so on. I mean, it's right. the only that place to go. The pesky ocean is not in the way necessarily. Yeah, it is. 
Uh, third, let's see. We had um, yeah. Then, this wouldn't surprise people too much, but you had Germany. Let's see, one hundred nine thousand asylum seekers. France far behind there with sixty thousand. Sweden with fifty four thousand, um, and on and on and on. In comparison, the U.S. actually got eighty eight thousand asylum applications. This doesn't say how many they actually took. In Australia, where it became a such a big political issue that, in a way, it, it changed uh, the results of an election, 24,000 uh, last year. And then at the end, they throw in this little detail of what applications are accepted or successful. And apparently, according to this article, most applications from Syria, Iraq, Somalia, and Afghanistan were successful. And they get a percentage, 28% of Russians and 5% of Serbs actually managed to get their asylum bids. So that is just kind of amazing how this all works or doesn't work uh, in this world. It's an interesting list. The official one must be coming off of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees website. I'll go look for the original list instead of just the article, see if I can't share that with all of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I was... I wasn't surprised the Netherlands is nowhere on the list, and I think it used to be, but these last, the, the, well, the 12 years that I've been here, the rhetoric is constant of being less open to, to refugees and, and less willing and so forth. And that continues. Uh, there's lots of drama over here right now about uh, foreigners and immigration, and that stuff still echoes, even though it's been going on for years. Uh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> So yes. things are not getting much better in Afghanistan, as it seems, as there has been a new attack on yeah. one of those Kabul hotels where you have yeah. been to. Yeah. You know the That's feeling. Why... You know? What's the feeling? I do. It's it's horrible. And actually, this Ahmad, I didn't know him. Uh, oftentimes, if a journalist is running around in Afghanistan, an Afghan journalist, I got to meet so many of them. But I didn't know Ahmad. I knew of him. So now, and, so there was an attack and one AFP reporter died and his family. Yeah, that's him. Yes, yes. He um, He's sort of a legend in, in the world of uh, journalists in Afghanistan. He started uh, a press agency called Pressistan. I think you could probably still follow them on Twitter. They provide lots of interesting information and local help if you're a journalist going to Afghanistan. And yeah, he was, I mean, you could probably rewind a year and you'll hear another similar story for someone else. He was eating dinner with his family, three kids, a wife, uh, and uh, gunmen were already in the hotel somehow. They say that they'd been in there for three or four hours waiting And they opened fire and killed uh, not just him and his family, uh, but also several aid workers, Canadian, Pakistani, in, uh, from India as well. And uh, the word is that one of his children is still alive, uh, but critically injured. And I, I don't know what the injury is. Um, and this, of course, in my world, uh, results in a lot of sad and, and angry friends and friends of friends on, on all the social media And I wanted to bring up something. About, okay, so he worked for the AFP, uh, as several of my friends do in Kabul. And what they always say about him in the press, besides being very talented and doing a lot of stories about the non-war world, the, the regular life in Afghanistan, which is my favorite topic, um, he had contacts, as a good journalist would, uh, on both sides, in the government side and also on the Taliban side. Um, that's always a tricky area, but, a, a, of course, a, a very interesting area for journalists in Afghanistan to find Taliban contacts. Of course, you have, like, more moderate Taliban that will actually talk to people and are more into talking tough and not necessarily hurting people. And then you have the militant, uh, harder-to-reach world of the Taliban. Anyway, he had contacts on both sides of this conflict. And I always think, like, that would help you to not be a target, but this apparently not the case. Um, and so the Afghan press uh, between them have announced a 15-day boycott on reporting about the Taliban. And when I saw this, I had to think about it. 15-day boycott on reporting about the Taliban. So, you know, for what they did, right, a punishment. Okay. What I don't get is what about... Like, maybe it wouldn't be effective, but what about a complete boycott of reporting about the Taliban? Is that even acceptable? Is that, does that do more harm than good? I mean, if the Taliban want press when they do things like this, mm -hmm. and then you don't give it to them, 
I, you know, maybe it, it wouldn't that, work. Right. Maybe it would maybe, still kill people. Yeah, they would still kill people, or it wouldn't really work in the in the press field, because you know, like 15 days, there's something they can agree upon. But if you yeah. try to make it like a year-long ban, or let's say like a couple of months, you know, there would be probably some someone, would. someone just like stepping aside, saying like "fuck you," and we're going to mm. report here anyway because it's news, and you know, yeah, I don't know. That's maybe the dynamics uh, in, in that area. I don't know. That's that's yeah. very complicated for me to answer. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't. I'm not one that usually says like, let's not talk about something that exists. You know, <laughs> let's let's ignore it. Don't say the bad word. But uh, you know, with such extreme behavior and and such horrible behavior, actually, it's it's like. What can you do? Isn't there some clever strategy to to really shut them out? I don't want them to get the attention they're getting, right? Nobody does, mm-hmm. um, because hopefully they don't do such things anymore. But it's just, yeah. Anyway, fifteen day boycott, another loss of a great journalist, and and personally, like, I, I it's not the time to do it, but I, I reach, I will be reaching out to my friends and saying, like, do you need help getting out of there? What can I do? I'm going to start underground railroad to help uh, good journalists escape if they want. Of course, a good journalist never wants to leave his country, uh, I understand, but when it becomes a choice between survival, at least your family, oh, I don't know. Okay, I'm too torn up about this one. Yeah, it's um, too bad. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm always keeping an eye on how our journalists are doing in, in Kabul and other parts of Afghanistan, and there are still many doing wonderful work. All right, let's go to something far more bizarro and less violent. The story of uh, Mount Gox, which is a mountain somewhere covered in bitcoins. Now, I missed this story last week. You even reminded me, but I still missed it. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a mountain of fail, you know? A mountain of fail. <laughs> All right. That's, that's, so, that's what it is. First, Mount Gox itself. This is a company, right? Yeah, or you, and yeah, what do they do? Like they they trade in Bitcoin. So Mount Gox is a <laughs> Japanese company based in Tokyo, but with Americans working there, especially one guy, Mark Capelis. And originally, when they set out to build this new venture, and that's why they're called Gox, they were not into the business of trading bitcoin because the the when they started out the bitcoin wasn't really on their radar initially oh. uh so but they wanted to be uh, a a trading place for trading cards out of the oh, yeah. gaming scene you know mm-hmm. and Magic. yeah yeah <laughs> but so they wanted to deal with trading cards for the game Magic the Gathering. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's how this name came to be. Magic the Gathering. MTG oh. Online Exchange. That's <laughs> you know, that's that's, Mount. The, that's Mount Gox. And <laughs> somehow in the process of ramping up and you know creating software that does training this whole Bitcoin thing came along and they said like, oh, let's fuck it here with the trading cards. Nobody cares. We're <laughs> going to trade Bitcoins. You know, we have already have our system and we are like... So, and then they've been... Because they were so early on with this and at the right time changed horses, uh, they have been very successful and most of the traffic of the trading traffic on the Bitcoin market was actually dealt by Mt. Gox. Wow. And they have the shiny surface, and so far, you know, things seem to work. But now we know it's been a mess from the beginning, and it was only getting worse. And still, <laughs> the truth, the whole truth, is not really on the table. But what what has been shining through so far uh, is worse than bad it's 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 really an amazing story of fail and incompetence <laughs> and corruption and, and 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 criminal behavior and cowardness that that is really beyond understanding and without comparison in this what, market 
one description in I think it was the Daily Beast talked about it like imagine a fast food restaurant that has frozen burgers in the refrigerator and that every time somebody orders a burger they serve them too and then when you finally go look in the refrigerator one day you find that you're actually out of burgers even though you're supposed to have half as many or something and I just found it funny because they compared it to giving free burgers yeah and and the the whole story it's still unclear and there are a lot of interesting uh theories out there what actually happened you know uh but it's totally clear that at least the official story mount gox was trying to get out doesn't really make sense on many 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 levels so what happened was that a couple of weeks ago two months or so uh mount gox was starting getting into trouble people were noticing that their money wasn't arriving that they tried to uh retract from their accounts and then they gave out a statement and said like oh yeah we found a problem with the bitcoin protocol and this is a general problem of Bitcoin, and we've in, been in contact with the Bitcoin Foundation, and we have already uh, proposed a solution for this, and yeah, and until this is cleared, we're no longer handing out money, and you know, but we're going to be uh, back and you know, stay calm. You'd be a great spokesman. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> <laughs> for them it's like hire <laughs> uh, well. hire me everything is fine on the internet <laughs> we're in control go home you know take care of approach. yeah take care of your wife and kids and you will be fine um um yeah and then discussion started what was actually going on and uh, actually there was a technical problem with bitcoin not so much with the core protocol but with the software implementing the features on the client side and the way m not most but many of the implementations, especially the core uh, implementation, the reference implementation was also lacking from that problem. Uh, there was a, a problem how software was verifying that a transaction has actually occurred. So the way they did it worked most of the time, but there were edge cases uh, where it sort of failed to find the um, confirmation that the transaction was actually completed. And that became obviously a problem once other uh, entities, exchanges and mining pools started to change their software so that this edge case you know, became more popular. It showed up often and more parts of the uh, ecosystem failed. And it might be that MindGox was one of them. Other exchanges were also in that uh, business of having problems. And it's actually also this, the standard Bitcoin wallet software that you could download from bitcoin.org also had this problem. So what the, was the effect? The effect was sort of uh, you send Bitcoin money to somebody else, basically signing over your Bitcoins to somebody else, then entering it into this global pool of machines calculating this Bitcoin ecosystem, producing new Bitcoins, and by doing this, confirming transactions. That's the, the general model of Bitcoin. I think we haven't really talked about Bitcoin and no, the details here. Uh, it's a very complicated uh, topic. Just let me say that... Uh, <laughs> In order to make this market work, people need to invest computing power to calculate long uh, cryptographic calculations. And by finally, after some more or less predefined time, finding a solution for a uh, cryptographic uh, workload, they sort of confirm uh, that they have done work <clears throat> And they, they are allowed to confirm transactions. And by this model of behavior, they can ensure that nobody can overtake the system. And that, that's sort of at the core of how Bitcoin works. Uh, it might be worth discussing in detail on you know, another show. Mm -hmm. But uh, what you have to understand is that just this... Uh, the the basic idea is you sign over your bitcoins and then you wait for the network to confirm that this mm -hmm. transaction actually happened and then you look out for this confirmation and because of this error 
in the implementation, this uh, confirmation wasn't seen. It was there, but they just failed to recognize it. And then they thought like, oh, it didn't go through. And some exchanges, including Mt. Gox, you know, mm-hmm. made, the, made the mistake of reissuing it, you know, <laughs> doing it again. So for transferring even more money. This wouldn't yeah. be such a problem if they were probably accounting the internal balances and, you know, have checks on what's going on, probably automatically stopping this and so on. But the core software at Mt. Gox was pro- probably a total mess. So mm-hmm. in the end, to make it short, <laughs> they... Uh, apparently uh, lost something around 750,000 Bitcoin, which is an insane amount of money if you compare it on on the general (laughs) price level that that Bitcoins are are dealt with these days. And they also were not in total control of their bank accounts too. So now the situation is they have basically shut down. They are uh, in, um, how do you say that, in uh, insolvency. Oh, bankruptcy. Yeah, and they, they entered these uh, protection programs by state, so they're more or less governed by state now. And the same yeah. happened in the U.S., not only in Japan. And the outcome is, uh, is uh, unclear right now. Uh, <laughs> last week, by going through their backups, they discovered another wallet that they weren't aware of where they found 200,000 other bitcoins in yeah <laughs> which is nice that's, that's like that's like when you put on your spring jacket after the winter and yes. you find 5 euros yeah something like this but there's yeah, <laughs> oh yeah i had another 11 million what in my yeah in my pocket. pocket that's it something like this so this is so weird and it might go on what's obviously clear is this mark capellus guy he wasn't really in control of things he probably, <laughs> and he also probably knew that the shit was about to hit the fan much, much, much earlier. So mm-hmm. he's been very dishonest too. And uh, the whole new Bitcoin industry uh, suffers a lot because of this, uh, in terms of trust, of course. You know, this, um, the market price has been going down a lot for a while, it's yeah. sort of stabilized recently. Okay. Because in a way, you know, might Mt. Gox might have been a failure in itself. But on the other hand, Bitcoin, the system still works. And for many, it still poses, uh, you know, it's still, it's still a, um, yeah, a, it's sis- a system that, that, that people think might be worth something. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing how it attracts well okay only two examples right now but how it seems to attract some real uh assholes no incompetent mm. I'm thinking here of the uh, the dread pirate Roberts previously who who had all the uh, bitcoin uh, and was uh taken by the US government the silk road guy <laughs> yeah i yeah. mean but i don't know what it is maybe it's just we only know these famous examples and all the good Nice people, they go unnamed. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a general question of how to think of Bitcoin. Because on the one hand, they're sort of freeing us from, you know, governments and, 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 and the, the oligopoly that, that, that the bank system is. And that, on the first look, might feel interesting. Mm-hmm. Then again, you know, money is more than just this. It's also... Uh, something that actively controls how the international economy works. And, you know, we don't really want people to get away with money quickly and not paying taxes and all this stuff. So some kind of governmental control might be not such a bad idea at all. But then again, you have this banking system trying to keep out. uh, You can always see it with... um, uh, new endeavors like like Flatter, the micropayment system, you mm-hmm. know, has really has problems getting into the system of banking. Passing along money is not that easy because they just don't let you in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they try everything to to prevent newcomers to 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 enter the market and you know keep their profits clear. So there's a big incentive for many now to jump on the board of uh, the Bitcoin protocol just because nobody can prevent you from sending and receiving money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and although in theory it's traceable, it's very easy to 
uh, at least cover your tracks uh, in an enormous way. So it's although in theory it should always be possible to track money, it's something that's not that easily done. And mm. the verdict is still out on, on, on this, if this is going to be super easy in the future somehow because of proper software, um, you know, trying to mm -hmm. get a hold of, of any kind of track or if there are other tricks to be found that you know will prevent this from happening. I don't know. That's a more technical question. But on the other hand, uh, Bitcoin money is interesting because it, it, is a, um, it has a fixed number of coins. So once the mining itself uh, has produced 21 million Bitcoins, then there will be no more Bitcoins. Mm -hmm. And we can also expect more stupid people to lose their Bitcoins by, you know, crashing hard disks and, you know, money, money will just get lost because if you lose your data that sort of has all the cryptographic proof that you own a Bitcoin, you know, and if you just, you know, delete it, nobody's going to give it your back. It's not that you call <laughs> the Bitcoin banks. They're like, oh, I need a new copy of <laughs> my, my Bitcoins, my money. Yeah, <laughs> Give me my money. It's like, yeah, it's your money. It's like cash somehow. Uh -huh. So, But with cash in the normal money system, you can always get to the governmental bank and say like, oh, yeah, print new money. <laughs> and that's what actually they do. You know, right, That's right, a concept right. of money is that you constantly produce more of it so there is this intrinsic inflation of money which sort of tells everybody that if you keep your money it will be worth less tomorrow <laughs> right you know that's the idea of inflation and in bitcoin there is actually the opposite it's deflation it's sort of if you keep your money it gets worth more mm -hmm. so what should you know, what what's the incentive to spend it. So how Bitcoin actually correlates with the real world economy, nobody knows. Mm. Or at least I don't know. You know, there are theories out there that just say like this can't be or this is a bad thing. And you see all those libertarians, you know, totally anti-gov all the time, you know, going behind Bitcoin. It's also sort of scary. So <laughs> I, I don't really know what to make out of this. The political discussion Uh, is still not really on the scale of where it should be, but I think uh, Bitcoin is not going to go away. And mm -hmm. we as a society, as an international society, yeah. have to find a way uh, how to deal with this. It's also, you know, what's also very interesting, we could do our own news of the world currency if we wanted, you know, just by taking the software and opening a new pool. Bitcoin is just one instance of using that software. But you can, at any point in time, uh, do your own currency. There are actually websites out there where you can just go and click and, you know, here, how do you want to name your currency? You know, and then yeah. you start a mining pool just I, by I initially. Huh? It would be called Pritcoin. Oh, the Pritcoins. <laughs> yeah, that's an empire. Just to go with everything else. <laughs> 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 all, right, all right, all right. Yeah, let's print But the yeah. Pritcoin. And uh, so, you know, I mean, there are lots of fun uh, coins out there. There's Ars coin of Ars. Uh, that's right. Uh, there's there's Dogecoin, you know, which is like the, the, the internet Doge meme, you know, the dog, you know, D O G E. Um, <laughs> Which are actually traded, you know. You can, can you can invest in Dogecoin today. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Make gonna... dog money fast. <laughs> dog money. So All okay, right. long story, so, yeah. but I think I shed some light on it. To, uh, final yeah. word on on Mount Gox. Uh, this place is doomed, and <laughs> uh, it's probably not going uh, to come back. Once I mean, if they find another wallet with another 500,000 Bitcoin, they might be okay. I doubt this is going to happen. This 200,000 Bitcoin find was uh, very surprising. I don't know what's going to happen. I might think that somehow there will be some kind of payback. I, at least yeah. this 200,000 Bitcoins um, must be used to sort mm. of give money back to those who have actually put it in there. So even I, you know, also have lost some tiny amount uh, of bitcoins. There might, at one point in time, 
get something back. I don't know. Uh, maybe it will happen. Why? Maybe not. But Bitcoin mm. itself is going to stay. Uh, the dominance it will uh, it has right now. It's going to keep in this electronic money market. What the overall impact is going to be? What the reaction of the country is going to be? I don't know. But there will be many more currencies, and we're going. We're facing a future, a near future, which is sort of like the reality right now where mm -hmm. digital currencies exist because Bitcoin has already yeah. proven that it works. It hasn't proven that it's good for everybody. It's just right. that this, the system is work. totally stable and can even survive yeah. so stupid assholes like Mr. Kapoor. <laughs> and, and from this story, we get great headlines like Mount Gox is doomed, which sounds like some kind of Disney Indiana <laughs> Jones story. Mount Gox is doomed. Don't go there. Uh, <laughs> it's a <all> right. <laughs> bad place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People lose their coins. Uh, so I, I was just about to wrap it up, and then I came across a story that is one of my, my favorite topics and, and just a little progress report. This one is coming from Ethiopia, and the Gerd Dam, the, the Grand Dam Project of Ethiopia. This is the project where Ethiopia is building a massive dam, 1,800 square kilometers, $4.7 billion worth of investment, 8,500 workers, 24 hours a day. It's very much like a film. And um, it's controversial because it's damming the Blue Nile, which goes into the main Nile, which is Egypt's lifeblood. And Egypt traditionally has all the control over uh, these agreements. Most of the agreements, I looked up the history over the Nile, have been between Sudan and Egypt. And you'd be hard-pressed to find Ethiopia mentioned in any of them. This is very much from the colonial era where Ethiopia wasn't, well, was left out of these uh, sort of Ang British Empire-type agreements. But so, they're building it. It's now 30% complete. That was the, the sort of announcement. Uh, the BBC, of all sources, had a little update report with lots of photos. It's amazing to see. It's become such a dry area because I guess they wiped out whatever vegetation there was there. Uh, although I shouldn't exaggerate the vegetation because temperatures in the summer are upwards of 40 to 50 degrees Celsius. Mm. It's hot. Um, this is along the border with Sudan. And so, the, you know, it's not ready yet. Egypt is still completely against this. And, I mean, it's not completely impossible that, that some, some very angry and uh, potentially destructive uh, activity will go on between these governments. Uh, but the Ethiopian government says, don't worry, Egypt. You know, your flow is going to continue. Uh, the Egyptian government says, hey, don't, don't damn the Nile. Um, we'll see what happens. Sudan is now in favor of this, or, or, or they're going to go with it, um, but they're not as affected, depending on what happens. But it's one of these amazing infrastructure projects that is so expensive and so huge and could, in some ways, uh, change things for Ethiopia. Although, you know, it's a strong country, but it's, uh, you know, when it comes to water and, and the power of water, electricity, yes... So that's my, my little progress report. 30% complete on the Gerd Dam. So what's the uh, expectation when it is going to be ready? <laughs> I don't think they say anymore, but um, I think this takes at least another six years. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's yeah. see how it's done. Although 24 hours working, I don't know. Hmm. Mm, they move fast. Um, but th this is going to be something amazing when it's, when it's done. That's why I, I keep an eye out on it. All right, let's uh, wrap it up with the news source. And since we were using some of our Mount, well, my Mount Gox info, because Tim, actually, you had far more information. But the Daily Beast had the inside anonymous interview uh, regarding Mount Gox. So I put them as our source of the week. And I didn't know this, actually. The Daily Beast merged with Newsweek. Uh, this would have been... Back in 2010, and Newsweek is like, you know, big news magazine. Daily Beast was more of an online uh, news source launched in 08. And, well, the two came together, and uh, but then again, they were sold uh, in 2013. They now belong to something called International Business Times. Regardless, it's a major source online for all kinds of stories, some more in-depth, some crappier. I'm not a huge fan of the Daily Beast, 
But every now and then they get you an interview or a, a scoop, as we say, that you might not get anywhere else. So although I don't love the Daily Beast, I recognize it as a source that's out there and add it to the list. Okay. And I will yeah. add it to the list on our website. Yes. Yes. Which is, which which is huge. Yeah. Uh, talking about the website, I made some minor changes to the look of the archive. So that's now better. Uh, expect more mm. tiny things to happen mm. with, uh, you know, progress with our progress. podcasting software that, you know, makes these things possible. If um, you reelect us, we will. Oh. <laughs> ah, different podcast. Progress is our middle name. Okay. So right. then that's it, yes. right? Yes. We could pr very well be back with you for more news next week. The only way to know is to keep refreshing your feed. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Refresh your feeds. Refresh your feeds. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>